news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. Today's guest is the New York Times best-selling author of six previous novels, The Dollhouse, The Address, The Masterpiece, The Chelsea Girls, the Lions of Fifth Avenue, and the Magnolia Palace. She lives in New York City and is a graduate of the Columbia Journalism School. It's my pleasure to welcome Fiona Davis. Fiona, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Something that I want to point out, because we, we say this a lot in the bios, New York Times bestselling author, so that it kind of fades into the background. But I want our listeners to know how difficult it is to become a New York Times bestselling author and to do it over and over and over again, Fiona, is one hell of an achievement. So we really just want to recognize that. Thank you very much. I, I give so much credit to, to the, the GMA book club because they chose the Lions of Fifth Avenue for their book club, it just launched me into an entirely new audience and, and changed the trajectory completely. It is amazing what that kind of thing can do. It feels like lightning striking for an author, but you need an incredible book first before they, they choose it for that kind of book club. So kudos to you on that. Now, for our listeners, we're going to be chatting about Fiona's latest novel, which is called The Spectacular. We will focus on that interview later on in the show. For now, as per usual, we're going to dive in with our query letters. Cece, will you please kick us off? 
Dear Ms. Cece Lira, I want to start by thanking you, Carly and Bianca, for all you do. I have learned so much about writing by listening to the podcast, signing up for the beta reader matchup, and by following your social media accounts. And for that, I am grateful. Given your interest in flawed protagonists and feminist issues, I believe my debut novel, Paws and Pucks, may be a good fit for you. Classified as romance, it is complete at 80,000 words and told through dual POVs, and it would fit nicely on a shelf next to Icebreaker by Courtney Walsh and The Love Hypothesis by Allie Hazelwood. Female hockey coach Magnolia Maggie Austin plans to complete a to-do list left behind by her late mother. The first item to slap off the list, adopt a dog in need of love. Maggie's positive she's found the perfect pup until her high school hockey rival, NHL player Hunter Hart, shows up, claiming the same dog as his. At the risk of losing his job as a professional hockey player, Hunter hopes to better his image. He's had enough bad press lately, and adopting a dog would help him look good, right? Unfortunately, the animal shelter suggests that they share the fostering responsibilities of the dog and allow the dog herself to choose her owner at the end of a two-month period. Great idea, except the two can't stand being in the same room. So how are they supposed to co-parent a dog? After being spotted in public with their pup more than once, rumors surface, and now, thanks to the press, the world thinks they're dating. Both Hunter and Maggie would rather take a puck to the head than spend more time together, but if Hunter can help Maggie finish her mother's list, and if Maggie can better Hunter's reputation, maybe fake dating isn't such a bad idea after all. But with sparks forming and secrets unraveling, the pair struggle to keep their feelings off the ice and their hearts in the game where they belong. My name is Heather Alyssa. I live in Sylvan Lake, Alberta with my hockey coach of a husband and our three children. I am a teacher as well as a writer for a local magazine called Neighbors of Sylvan Lake. I have also had my writing published in various websites, publications such as Best Version, Media Sports, VitaDaily.ca, and Parents Canada. Thank you for taking the time to read my query and sample pages. May I please send you the full manuscript? Sincerely, Heather Alyssa. Thank you, Cece. I was really hoping for a mention of a dog in the query letter, considering the subject matter of the book. Maybe that was just an oversight. I really hope there is a dog. Okay, Cece, what was the word count there and what was your take on that? Do you mean a dog in the author's life? Yeah, yeah, I do, because most of the times in the query letters, authors tell us about their dogs. So we heard about the hockey coach, husband and the kids, but no mention of, of a dog in her life. So Heather, I really hope there is one. Carry on. It's a very prophetic comment, and I'll tell you why once we get to the pages. Okay, so at first I was like, do we need female before hockey coach when I read this? And I was like, yeah, we probably do. Or else I would think that she would be coaching like the men's team because we don't refer to the NBA as the... WNBA or the NHL as the W or, or the MNHL, we should. So this is my petition for us to start saying MNHL. If we have to say FNHL, do we even say that? I don't know. I don't know anything about sports, people. I have opinions about feminism, but not so much about sports. Okay. So this is a very cute premise, like very, very cute premise. I really like it. It's adorable. I think the story setup could be messier in terms of like more at stake, because what you're telling me is that these two single people, yeah, they don't like each other, but they're single 
and they have to spend time together and sparks start to fly. So I don't think there's enough of an obstacle for me to be like at the edge of my seat going, are they going to be together or not? There is a reason why the best-selling romance books, for example, Meet Me at the Lake, has a messy story setup. I will use this example again, Carly Fortune's book. When the protagonist meets Will, who's like a heartthrob, she has a boyfriend, right? Like this happens in the past timeline. That makes it messy. Why? Because she has a boyfriend. She can't fall for someone else. There's an obstacle in the way, so to speak. And the reader at first is confused. Wait, should I root for her sweet boyfriend? Should I root for this guy? I'm not sure. And that creates tension. So I do think that based on this query letter, for my taste, I would say we need a messier setup. But it doesn't mean that, you know, maybe I'll go into the pages and I'll feel differently. I also wasn't super clear on, the letter says, Hunter can help Maggie finish her mother's list. How is he helping? Like, honestly, it doesn't feel like Hunter's helping at all. It feels like Hunter's there creating a problem. Like, is the dog really his? Is he just being annoying? I, I We're on his head, right? So probably we'll know. So it does seem like a sweet but low stakes romance. And there is a market for this. But for again, for my taste, I, I always say you have to make it forbidden in some way. And to cap that off, this one came in at 427 words. Thank you, Cece. All right. What happened in the opening pages? We are at a dog shelter. The protagonist is there looking for a dog. A shipment of dogs came in the day before from an underground fighting ring. She's there to look, not choose, because she wants to take her time before choosing. And then she sees Lucy. Lucy's a golden retriever, and Lucy's also her mom's name. And so she thinks it's meant to be. And she talks to the person there, her name's Beth, and tells Beth that she's going to take Lucy. But then, as she's on the floor looking at Lucy, she sees a pair of feet She's on the floor, so she can't see anything other than the feet. And the pair of feet tell her, oh, I see you're keeping my dog company for me. And that's where the pages end. Thank you, Cece. I would be remiss if I did not say on day of taping, it is my golden retriever's 12th birthday, and there are going to be big celebrations in this house, people. That's all I'm saying. Okay, Cece, what was your take on those pages? Okay, so... This is really interesting. What you said about the query letter, Bianca, it's almost like you were reading my mind. I'm a big fan of interiority, right? Like it's what separates a book from other art forms, including movies and TV shows. Interiority is so important. If you do it right, you can up to tension. If you do it right, you can create emotionality. If you do it right, you can do all the things that a story needs to do through interiority. I believed that she was grieving her mother. Her interiority, the protagonist's interiority, was of someone who lost a parent. I've never lost my mom, but I have lost my dad. And of course, like every person's experience is different, but that was a grieving person. I felt it in my bones. Her thoughts were specific and unique and yet universally relatable, like such a good job. However, when it comes to the interiority of someone who was there to adopt a dog and who there's a line that reads, I fell in love with this dog. Like I can't help myself. I've fallen. She's mine. I'm hers. Whatever the line says. I didn't believe it at all. I was like, this person's not falling in love with this dog. Like I like to me, this was the author needs the the protagonist to fall in love with the dog. So she wrote that she fell in love with the dog. I am not buying it. Part of the reason why I'm not buying it, this is just one example. She is there and she knows that the dogs came in the day before from an underground fighting ring. We all please take a moment to talk about how awful it is that we live in a world where this is a thing. She looks at Lucy and she's thinking about Lucy's name and we get no thoughts of, oh my gosh, what must this dog have gone through? Like what, like poor Lucy, I can, I can only imagine what life must have put her through. 
Like that, if, if you're a dog lover, if you're a person with empathy, like you're going to think that. Another example, her mom was allergic to dogs, right? And we get a line through her mom's voice in her head saying, get the dog you've always wanted. But we don't get her thinking about the maybe the picture of the golden retriever she had up in her room when she was a kid. And we also don't get messy emotions. So for example, if she could never have a dog until her mom died, because her mom was so, so allergic, and they were close, so even if she's living someplace else, like probably that would give her allergies, then probably right now she's feeling conflicted. She's feeling, yes, I really want this, but I, she feels guilty for being able to have it because she's only able to have it because her mom is dead. Like my point is, you need to combine these two things. You need to combine the the emotionality that comes with grief, which is so compelling. And you did a fantastic job with that, like fantastic, with the desire. Because grief is is a passive emotion. Desire is not. The desire for a dog can activate so many things. So I was not believing it. I marked the manuscript in various moments where I was like, maybe she would think this, or maybe she would think that, or would she think this? So hopefully that helps you. As a minor thing, I would say, one, I had a plausibility issue with the shelter lady who just met the dog, the dog arrived the day before, and said she wouldn't hurt a fly. That is not how, in my experience, people who work at shelters act. They are super, super careful and super diligent. They first test out dogs with cats, dogs with children, dogs with other dogs, and they go through a really lengthy procedure. And if the dog just arrived, that just doesn't sound believable to me. So I would make it so that the dog had been there for a long time so that Beth, the person, the receptionist person, can give her this kind of reassurance. I also don't believe that she would say, oh yeah, let's take care of paperwork so easily. Usually there's an intake interview. There's lots of questions that are asked. And so I would also build that into the premise that she had gone through that process already, right? Just so there's not a plausibility issue. And if that's not why, if, if I'm wrong about these issues, then just convince me. Yeah, those are my notes. Thank you, Cece. Yeah, I must be honest. As an animal lover, my idea of hell is going to a shelter to pick out a dog because seeing that many dogs who desperately need a home and I'm only able to take one of them home, that sounds really like hell. So I'd love to see that conflict as well in, in this character in terms of that. Right, we are now going to our guest for today, Fiona Davis, author of The Spectacular. And we're going to ask Fiona to read us her query letter. All right. Dear Carly Waters, when a Seattle curator procures an unsigned portrait of a beautiful woman, he falls in love with her descendant and learns that soulmate is more than a metaphor after dis discovering he loved her in past lives too. At 118,000 words, Woman in the Painting is a dual era, multiple point of view, romantic fiction with elements of magical realism, melding the soulmate equation's sexy, playful humor with V.E. Schwab's layered world building and vibing A.S. by its possession. This book club read is a second chance love story appealing to anyone who seeks the one. Upon acquiring the 19th century portrait, biracial curator Jew dreams of Philomena, the woman in the painting. A steamy affair ensues with her descendant, British expat Marielle Heathcote, who questions whether Jude's interest lies more with the portrait than her. Desire to unmask the painter to determine the painting's value and perhaps comprehend Jude's unnerving visions leads them to her family estate in England. There they unearth forgotten journals, but returning home triggers Marielle's night terrors and debilitating phobias. Hypnotherapy may be the only cure. Past life regression connects them to an impossible Georgian-era love triangle. Unwed Philomena, Ransom, her unborn baby's father, and Heathcote, the man who adored him. Intrigues, class politics, and family scheming separate the lovers, pressuring Philomena to marry another. With fortunes and reputations at stake, Philomena must seize control of her destiny in a man's world 
or lose her chance at happiness. To understand their gut-wrenching bond to the painting, Mariel and Jude must yield to the possibility they've loved each other before. Woman in the Painting was a top finalist at both Pacific Northwest Writers Conference 2022 and Romance Writers of America writing contests. Since 2013, I've edited over 50 novels and self-published five multi-author anthologies. Like Jude, I'm mixed race, an art lover, an unabashed Anglophile, and live in Washington State. Hashtag own voices. Thank you for your consideration. I would love to take my upmarket debut to the next level with you. Sincerely, Christina Boyd. Wonderful, Fiona. Thank you so much for that. Okay, we're going to go to Carly now and get her take on the query letter. How many words, Carly, and what did you think? All right, this one clocked in at 333 words. You know what? I really, really, really wanted to like this. I am so confused. I am so confused about the time travel. I'm confused about the people. And I really want to understand this. And now I'm like, I'm worried this is a me problem, not a this person problem. So I'm curious about Cece's take on this as well, because this is the type of thing that I would normally love. It's on the long side, 118,000 words. But there's so much about this that I find completely fascinating. I guess what I'm confused about is Jude falls in love with the image of the woman, has the affair with the descendant, but then goes back in time and interacts with Philomena. So like what happened with the romance with Marielle, but Marielle is fine. But the fact that he lusted after the person and the, I don't know, I guess I'm just so confused. So I, as I said, this is the type of thing that I, that I really wanted to love. So Cece, does, does this one make more sense to you? Because maybe this is a me problem and not a query problem. It's possible that it's an agent problem because we read so many stories and so we're all tired, but I also did not understand. I had to read it twice, the plot paragraphs. Part of it was the formatting that was off. I made a note for the author. Like, I don't think you should be formatting in this way. Formatting really messes up with readability, especially for my brain. But part of it is also, is it time travel? Because I I think it has to be if you're going to be in a love triangle, right? Like, but, but I wasn't clear on that because it says regression and hypnotherapy. Like, we never... Is it all going to be like dreamy stuff? Like, I don't, I, I, I guess I'm confused about the execution. The fact that you're saying multi-POV also threw me off because I was like, how many POVs are we getting with this thing? Because typically these stories are very character driven. And when you have multi-POV, you usually have a plot driven book. So I don't know if it would be possible to maybe center this in Jude's feelings for, like, I don't know. I, I am confused to be perfectly honest. I, I wasn't sure how the plot was going to escalate. If I had to map this out, I wouldn't be able to. And I think it's just a matter of tweaking it. Okay, so we normally say that if an author is writing a multi-POV novel, they should map out the the arcs and the plot points of each character. You saying with this to rather stick with Jude, Cece, what's your advice here in terms of fixing, just in terms of just getting this tighter? Yeah, so what I'm saying is that I wasn't clear who the main, main character was. In multi-POV, you usually have, and usually it's the first person, first person that we see, of journey that we see from beginning to end that has a big, big change. Like usually it's a coming of age, not usually, but sometimes it's a coming of age. Sometimes it's something else. But I wasn't sure who the, I guess, main hero was just because everything seemed really intertwined. And I think I got lost. So I almost wonder if you could focus on on Jude, assuming that's who the main, main character is. And then we could understand that that would be the central plot arc and then the other points of view would just be added so that we could understand the other sides of this love triangle messy story so focusing on jude might make it clearer but again it 
I'd, I'd need to know more about the novel to be super sure about this idea. I think right now that it's the best advice I have. Like focus on Jude, make it about his hero's journey. Mention obviously the other characters and I'll know based on the fact that it's multi-POV that the other points of view are being added to really up his story and offer differing versions to up detention. Thank you, Cece. Kali, was there anything else you wanted to add there? Another thing was jumping out at me is, do we know for sure that Jude is male? Because every time the word Jude is used, there's a lot of like, they. I don't know if there's there's a he at all in this. So then I was like, okay, maybe, again, another reason why I'm a little confused. Did anybody else clock that? I assumed male, but you're right. I don't actually know that. I also wanted to know, like, a steamy affair ensues. What does that mean? Because affair, I usually think, like, illicit affair. It doesn't necessarily mean that. It's a word that could mean something totally benign. But how is it an affair, you know? How is it just not a normal relationship? There was just a lot of things that I wanted to know, But this, which is a good sign in many ways. Yeah. All right. So for our author, it's just a case of really sort of drilling down and picking out the diamonds in here so that you can place them front and center. Right, Fiona, before we go to what was in the opening pages, did you have a different take on the query letter or were you similarly a bit confused? I I was similarly a little bit confused. The same thing. It's just tricky. Is Jude in love he, he he's in love with maybe the great great grandmother who's in the painting, but then he's also having an affair with her descendant. Um, in in modern times, it just seems very complicated. And then there's an unborn baby, and then Heathcote, the man who adored Jude. So there's just a lot of triangles I think going on here, and maybe it just could be streamlined so that we we can understand it and and understand kind of if Jude is the main character, what he wants, what is driving him and what are the stakes? Great, Fiona. Thank you. Okay. Will you give us an indication of what was in the opening pages? Yeah. So in the opening pages, it's from Jude's point of view and he is a he. Um, So there's, there's that. And he's basically a very successful international art expert. And he has an auction house in Seattle and he's come to England to look at some paintings at an estate. And one really strikes him and he's very drawn to it. It's this beautiful woman standing on a field of bluebells. And even though the painting's unsigned and not worth anything because of that, he's very much drawn to it and very much wants it. And so he talks to the the owner who's a descendant of, of the woman in the painting and he acquires it as a loan to bring back to Seattle and to study and to learn more about because he's just so into it. And at the very end of it, he has a dream where he's interacting with the woman in the painting. Wonderful, Fiona. Thank you. Okay. Can you give us some feedback on that? Do you think the author's starting in the right place? And do you have any suggestions to elevate the work? Yeah. You know, it's so clear the author is an expert in art and knows the Georgian era. She knows art. She knows art history. And so there's a confidence to the writing that's wonderful. You feel like you're in in very solid hands with her. It flows nicely. The dialogue feels real. It's clear she's she's an excellent writer who knows her stuff. Where I got tripped up were the stakes of the scene. I think it's the right place to open of him coming upon this painting because clearly that's going to be the crux of the story. But the, if you summed it up, it's this very successful man falls in love with a painting and gets it. And so there's nothing in his way. There's no obstacles. And it started me thinking of... What if this auction house is in dire financial straits? 
And what if he has, he's coming here to find these paintings that will hopefully save it, but the one he's drawn to is the one that's worthless. Yet he goes and, and chooses it anyway, knowing that his partner back in Seattle will be very angry. And, you know, so that there's something at stake here. Why is he putting himself on the line for this? And so that would be kind of a, a kind of a major adjustment. But I Can think I just yeah. pop in there as well, Fiona, because I think that'll help with the query letter as well, because the question was, what is it that Jude wants, right? I think that'll also help really frame the narrative of the query letter, because for the author, you've written really compelling opening pages, but your query letter isn't reflecting that. So that would be, you know, a, a great way of, of doing that. Sorry, Fiona, carry on. Yeah, no, I think you're you're absolutely right. And And then just in terms of of the painting, it starts out, the very opening is him staring at this painting and falling in love with it. And I feel like it's too early. Usually you you will fill up the first chapter with things that aren't necessary. And, and here she gets right to it, which is great, but it almost feels it's too early. Can we have a sense of who he is as he's looking at these paintings? And is he nervous? Is he, what's going on in his head? And then he sees the painting and is drawn to it. And throughout the the six pages, he's very drawn to this painting to the point where it gets a little creepy, where there's a lot of him just very much falling in love and wondering who she is and is she watching him? And, and I felt like it's a little too much. I'd love the magic realism to pull back a little bit because I know we're going to get into that later. And let's just have a touch of it. That There's a lot of him just enjoying this painting way too much. <laughs> Something there for our listeners to consider is how your reader is experiencing your world and your characters. So if you don't want him to come across as creepy and your readers kind of feel it's a little bit creepy how obsessed he is, then that's an indication to kind of pull back on that. But if you want him to come across as creepy, then fine. Then you created the tone that you wanted to. Anything else there, Fiona? Yeah, just two minor things. I think because the the writer is such a, an expert on art history. There's a couple of things where she mentions something to do with the art world. Um, there's a line, well, well, I'm not saying she's an Elizabeth Figuet Lebrun, and I have no idea who that is, and I don't know what that means. I don't know if it's good or bad. And so you'd, I think she'd need to explain that a little more. And then just one other just minor thing is she, the name of the painting is Mistress of Athel Frith Wood which is a Welsh, I'm pretty sure that's a Welsh name. And as a reader, your, your eye just stumbles on it. There's, and it's the third paragraph. So you're kind of going, wait, how do you say that? What is that word? And maybe just choose something that's a little easier on the eye. Yeah, especially in the opening pages, because you want your reader to be immediately immersed in your world and not stumbling over words or pronunciations or whatever. Awesome, Fiona. Thank you so, so much for my youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. 
There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. So you can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they've been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology. So it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're gonna get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. That. Right, we're now going to go to Carly's query, after which I will be chatting with Fiona Davis about the spectacular. All right, Carly, can you read us your query letter? All right, here we go. Dear Carly, I live in London and have become a huge fan of your podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I can't tell you how happy I am to have discovered it and love the opportunity to have my work critiqued by you. Since you expressed an interest in coming-of-age fiction for an adult audience on your manuscript wish list, therefore, I hope you will enjoy my debut, young adult novel, Light Beyond the Mountains, which is complete at 87,000 words. It was shortlisted for the 2022 Book Edit Writer's Prize and was chosen for the Commended Text Award on Fab Prize 2022. It is currently on the long list for the Cheshire Novel Prize. The full manuscript was requested by four agents in the past year. A snap decision to send Priya to school in the Himalayas leaves her shattered. Can she find the light beyond the mountains to win back her freedom and save her sister from her father's toxic control? Ever since she can remember, 15-year-old London-based Priya's controlling father has stopped her from doing what she wants. Trapped in the shadow of her confident sister Seema, she finds it impossible to live up to his ideals of a dutiful daughter. When he packs her off to school in the Himalayas after she lied about taking part in the school summer play, Priya arrives feeling abandoned and estranged. 
But what seems like the worst thing gives her the freedom to spread her wings, fall in love with a boy from Mumbai, and reach her potential away from Pa's watchful eyes. But at what cost? Can she find the strength to return home, save her sister from her father? Light Beyond the Mountains is a literary coming-of-age story that will appeal to readers who struggle with identity. It's a story of sisterhood and survival in the face of misogyny, the pain and joys of growing up, and finding love across a cultural and religious divide. It takes its inspiration from my own experience as a second-generation immigrant with a longing to belong, and from my work as a volunteer counselor for Childline. I believe every child deserves to be seen and heard. I see my novel sitting comfortably on the shelf with Run Rebel by Manjeet Man and The Girl in the Broken Mirror by Savita Kalhan. It would appeal to viewers of Netflix's Anne with an E for its unique setting and themes of abuse, friendship, and belonging. The book series gripped me as a child. In March 2021, I was awarded one of seven places at the Megaphone Writer Development Scheme for Writers of Color. Last year, I was selected for the HarperCollins Author Academy and for the London Writers Award 2022. I recently won a scholarship on the six-month novel course with Urban Writer Retreat. My second novel has a dual timeline depicting parallel historical narratives and around the partition of India, a period in history close to my heart. I enjoy all social media platforms and can be found on Twitter at Alcahanda. I work for the NHS and have two older children. In my spare time, I like to ramble in nature, inspiring my love for writing poetry as well as prose. I hope you connect with Priya's story and love it as much as I do. Thank you for taking the time to read this. Alka Hunt. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. I suspect it was quite a few words for that, so we'll find out now. And I'm interested to hear your take because I know you like to have the comps right at the top and this was lower down. So let's hear your feedback. All right. So this one is... 566 words. Single space takes up the whole page. So this is definitely a long one. It really fits the format of a typical kind of UK pitch because it has the hook bolded and that's like very common in jacket copy in the UK as well. So it's very kind of UK centric in that sense. I, one of the things I love about this query is how impassioned it is and just like beautiful, the kind of the way that the author you know, to share some of themselves in it. I, I really, I really like this. I think it is a very kind of lyrical query letter. Is it too long? Yes, I think it is. Are the stakes pretty low? Yes. So I think the kind of connection that the author is making between us and this story is kind of filling the gaps in the sense that it all feels a little bit passive. You know, I, I'm just curious about at any point, is anybody in like physical danger? You know, she says she has to find the strength to return home to save her sister from her father. But what does that mean? Again, is this sister in danger? So it does come off as a little bit quiet. So I'm just wondering if there's anything we can do to kind of amp that up, because we also don't really know what happens in Mumbai at all. We kind of just, we know that maybe she falls in love, I think, spreads her wings, but reach her potential. We actually have no idea what plot happens in Mumbai. And we spend much more time talking about the themes and literary coming of age and everything like that. So that's kind of my my take. And in terms of the the author bio and kind of all these accolades and types of awards things. You know, I feel I feel very conflicted about this because I think this is awesome that this author has gotten so many amazing opportunities, clearly connected with some people. I guess I'm just curious about you didn't get an agent for many of these experiences you know, any agent offers or publishing offers, did you turn them down? Like, I just feel like you would have been actually well connected through a lot of these things. So I guess I'm just curious about the trajectory or was it a previous manuscript that you were kind of put through these programs for? I don't know. It just seems like through these connections, I'm just kind of curious about business decisions that you've been making and, and maybe you've turned down some offers and that's okay too. So yeah, I'm just kind of, I'm just curious about all those things. Another reason why, um, why yes, uh, as Cece always says, we, we wish we would have authors on, on the pod to chat with us about this, but it's very 
very impassioned. It's it's very impassioned for for a literary pitch. Thank you, Carly. And for our listeners, we are playing around with the format of the show. So as we progress, we may get to the point where we're having authors back on Books with Hooks with us again. So uh, we, we are definitely having a look at that as we shuffle things around. Okay, so specificity there, Carly, in terms of plot points. What does spreading wings mean, etc., etc.? So things for, for authors to pay attention to. Okay, what was in those opening pages? So we open with the daughter in their family home, kind of staring out the window and her mom kind of brings her back to the situation in the kitchen where they're doing dishes. And it's right away we've kind of found out that she's being shipped off to Mumbai. Her dad kind of walks into the room. They have some conversations about it. And then she kind of has a little flashback to the moment when the dad told her that she was being shipped off. We get a whole introduction to the family dynamics, the father kind of being kind of brash and ignores the children. And the sister was told that she was leaving to go to Mumbai before she was even told. So she's pretty ticked about that. She's looking to her mother for help and, and not getting any. So we really just get the, the full dynamics of, of the family and, and learn about her being shipped off. Okay, so it looks like there's lots of opportunity there for, for conflict. Does the opening scene do the opening pages work? I feel like this is a case of I haven't read the whole book, but I have a feeling we're not starting in the right place. It feels very obvious that we would start here. And the fact that we have to flash back right away to the story about how everybody found out because she was in this play and got in trouble for that is why she was being shipped off. I don't know. I don't know. I it's I almost wish that we were in the moment where the parents found out based on my limited knowledge of the book. I think that could be a little bit more useful. The writing is pretty dramatic in that kind of YA type of way where like, oh, the stakes feel high just because I'm a teenager, which I totally, totally respect. But I just want to show an example of, of, of a way that I feel like we can hone in on that a little bit more in a literary capacity. So there's a line that says, my thought continued to gnaw at my insides, twisting and prodding until they were mush. So that like that physicality type of description is kind of just pretty stock, you know? It's like, that's kind of the thing that anybody could use. I was thinking like, how can we use the metaphor of the dishes or glasses because she's in the kitchen doing dishes? I, I thought of a line like, the thought made me feel like a glass of water slipping out of someone's hand and falling onto the floor. You know what I mean? To like be in the moment of having that intensity, like feeling like shattered glass, like because she's holding the glasses. Do you know what I mean? Instead of being like, my, my insides were being gnawed at, right? Which is like, again, a stock phrase that I think any writer could use, but I just want you to kind of figure out a way that you can be in the moment with us here, leaning into those teenage angst and emotions, but also using it in a specific way. So I think I, I, there's a lot of examples of that where, again, we can be in scene and use as an opportunity to establish setting while we're working through all of those those feelings. One thing I really liked in these pages was the fact that the sister knew she was being shipped off before she knew. I thought that was really, really well done. That was one of the things that I really liked about this. So potentially that could be a starting place if we want to start there, because we, it does, as I said, feel a bit obvious to me that that this is where we, we're starting. I like that there is also the secret of her being in the play, kind of being the reason that she gets in trouble and like everybody in the family finding out the secret. But I, I don't know, it, it just did felt like obvious that we were going to kind of start in this place. And I think being a little bit subversive and challenging could have been a little bit more interesting. So yeah, tons and tons of potential here. And I wish you the very best with this project. Thank you, Carly. For this author, listen to our Jennifer Herrera episode in terms of description, in terms of it revealing more about character, etc. I think that that'll be super helpful. And then also we've got an upcoming bonus episode with Emma Donahue in which we discussed Learned by Heart. And Emma and I discussed how her novel is about two 14-year-olds. It's not considered YA. 
even though Emma Donahue does write YA, but we also spoke about sort of more quiet slice of life books versus the teenage years where everything is huge to that character and the stakes are huge to them, even though it doesn't seem, you know, that huge just on the page. So that's a great interview to listen to as well. All right, now we get to turn our full attention and the spotlight to Fiona Davis, the author of The Spectacular. So Fiona, so much to love about this book, your work in general. I'm just a huge, huge fan. So for our listeners, what Fiona does is she writes books set in New York City landmarks. She chooses these buildings and an era in New York's history and kind of that forms the basis of what she's writing. And now with the spectacular, we've got Radio City Music Hall in New York. Now, there was a bit of an author's note in the book, Fiona, in which you discuss how you approach, you first choose the building and then the research you do. Can you speak a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So yeah, what I do is when I I kind of hone in on a building that might be interesting and that I know I want to snoop around in, the first thing I do is look for the surprises. And so I do a lot of research into the history to find out what time period might be a good period to set the, the book in, or if it's a dual timeline, what two periods. And I'm looking for surprises. So for example, at the New York Public Library to learn that a family lived in a seven room apartment deep inside the library, that makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up you know, a family living in the library. And so that's the kind of thing I'm looking for. And and with the Radio City book, it was the learning that in the 50s, it was very different to be a Rockette than it is today. Today, they, they work part-time, mainly around the holidays. And back then, they did four shows a day for three or four weeks straight before they even got a week off. And it was really a, a tough, tough job. And at the same time, these were women who were supposed to be secretaries or teachers. And yet here they were independent, making their own money, living in the heart of New York City. And I wanted to see if I could capture that. And besides that, something else that was so fascinating is while you were doing the research, you discovered about the bomber who was bombing all kinds of things in New York at the time, and how he led to the first psychological profiling that then became a huge thing in the FBI. Now, I've always been obsessed with psychological profiling when it comes to serial killers. And so when I read that this was the guy who was the first one, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, that, talk about a surprise. I, I love to have a hook for each book that's anchored to something real that's happening in New York City at that time. And so when I was looking at the 50s, I read something that said that, you know, in, in late 56, the police were really ramping up their hunt for the mad bomber who was eventually caught in January of 57. And I thought the mad bomber, you know, I've never heard of him. And to find out that this guy set bombs in iconic New York City buildings, including two at Radio City Music Hall, for 16 years, he set off 33 bombs and he injured 15 people, some seriously. And people were, were really worried. They were worried to go to the library or Grand Central or Penn Station because that's where he was placing these bombs. And I thought, what a fun, it's not my typical thing, right? I tend to write historical fiction and this ha- would have an, a thriller element to the book, but I couldn't resist, especially when I learned that the man who helped them capture it, this man named James Russell, used criminal profiling for the first time to tell the police who to look for. And he was so specific that his one of his comments was, when you find him, he'll be wearing a double-breasted suit and it will be buttoned. That gave me goosebumps. Even as you said it now again, it gave me goosebumps. So he was the father of psychological profiling and freaking nailed it straight out the gate. And I love that about The Spectacular. So it is historical fiction. 
for our listeners, we get so frustrated about the term women's fiction, but it is, it looks at what it is to be a woman in the world. I mean, when you look at these rockets, they were told they were not allowed to pick up any weight at all. They were not allowed to get a suntan. It was like they were objects, really, rather than human beings. So there's this feminist element, but then also this amazing thriller element. So really like a genre blend Is it something that when you started writing, you knew it was going to be that and therefore slightly different from your other books? Or did you lean more into that as you went along? I knew pretty early on in the research phase when I learned about the Mad Bomber and I knew I had to incorporate him knowing that he'd set two bombs at Radio City. It just felt like a sign. And so I did. I I did a lot of research and then I outlined the story very carefully. And there are two timelines, but the later timeline, there's only a few chapters. It's an older Rockette looking back on her life. And so it really was more of just a straight narrative of a woman auditioning, becoming a Rockette, and then for very personal reasons, getting caught up in the hunt for this bomber and teaming up with a a psychiatrist who's very introverted yet brilliant. So they're quite opposites trying to go after the same goal. So yeah, yeah, I, I was pretty sure that's the road I would go down. And it's fun, you know, after writing six or seven books, it's really fun to play and to have something new and, and to have something that might shock the readers. So that's why I decided to, to go for it. Yeah, well, they come for the historical fiction and then they stay for the Fiona Davis magic, which is always incredible. So for our listeners, I want to read you the first paragraph. So we start in December 1992. We start, the whole book is about Marion Brooks, who goes off to become a rocket. And it's in first person and it starts here and it goes, I still dance in my dreams, but not in my life. In my life, I shuffle around this too large house, tossing whatever is within reach into the nearest cardboard box, not bothering to wrap anything in newspaper or to make sure the box labeled living room actually contains items from the living room. The movers are far more worried about my belongings than I am. Now, for of our, our listeners, there is so much packed into that one paragraph because we are like, why is doesn't she dance? Why is she shuffling? She sounds depressed. Why doesn't she care about her belongings? Why do the movers care more? Where is she going? There's just so much there. Was this the original opening paragraph, Fiona? Please tell me you worked on this over and over. Otherwise, I might have to hate you. No, I, uh, well, I'll tell you, that was the opening paragraph. And I knew that line, that line came to me very early on, usually about two months into the research phase, I get that first line. And that's the sign that I need to start focusing on the character and plot and turn away from research. So that line came to me. However, I do have to say the next chapter opens in 1956 from young Marion's point of view. And those first three chapters from Marion's point of view I went over, I had to revise two or three times. I just couldn't get that starting point right. And there was a lot of information for her to pack in. And that's never happened to me, where I've had to just completely revamp three chapters until I found the the right tone. It's encouraging that it happens to every author of every caliber along the way. It's not just emerging writers. So can I ask why, when Marion's in the future... You have her in first person, and then why young Marion is in the third person, because that's obviously a very particular choice you made there in terms of the narrative voice. Older Marion is, like you said, maybe a little depressed, a little angry. And so I didn't want to distance the reader from her. I needed them to feel aligned with her, or at least close with her. And so by using first person, it felt like she's talking directly to them. And then when we go in the past, it's third person, so I can just cover a little more ground in a way. I knew young Marion would, everyone's rooting for her because she's just 
this wonderful dynamic character who's trying to be a Rockette and overcoming the her father's disapproval. And so, yeah, for it made sense to do I for older Marion, just to just to let the reader feel like this woman is talking directly into their ear. Yeah, there's an intimacy there that's lovely. It's it's really intimate, which draws you in immediately. So this whole first chapter is about planting curiosity seeds. There are things that Fiona drops, it's breadcrumbs, and the reader keeps following them to find out more. So I want to read just a few for you, right? So we know that she is going into assisted living earlier on in the page. And then she says, at 55, I still have all my memories intact. Thank you very much. There are days when I wouldn't mind blocking out the more painful ones, but I have nothing to complain about. Not yet. I'm aware of my limitations, but I'm not defined by them. So immediately the reader's like, wow, she's only 55. She's going into assisted living. What is this about? This is interesting. What painful memories does she want to block out? Then we get to, there is a mover who's helping her and it says, so he finds a box, right? And he goes, a box that split open while he was carrying it from upstairs and things fell out. And it says, he places the shoes carefully on the coffee table as if they were made of glass. Reaching back into the box, he pulls out a program for the Radio City Musical Christmas Spectacular of 1956, then a pair of worn Capizio character shoes. I remember exactly what it felt like to buckle them up and dash out of the dressing room, how they eventually molded to my feet after hours dancing on stage. When I see those shoes, the voices of the other dancers fill my ears, along with the strains of the orchestra warming up. But some memories are not as welcome. Screams of fear, the smell of smoke, bloodstains on my dance tights, a lone red ribbon, a combination of terror and regret wraps around me like a straitjacket. So at this point, we don't know about the bombing. We don't know about any of that. So we're like, holy hell, what, what is, why, why are there screams of terror? She's a dancer for goodness sake. How bad could their performance have been? And we just, <laughs> we're like, we, we need to know. We're going to read to know more. And then there's a part that somebody arrives to take her to the anniversary event that is happening at the Radio City Music Hall, the anniversary party. So this young woman hands something across and she goes, I take it from her without looking at it. I'm sure you'll have a bevy of current and former dancers in attendance. Why do I have to go? It's because of the book. I hope you don't, won't think me insensitive. I mean, I still can't believe what you went through. But the book is the reason they want you there. Everyone is so eager to know more about what happened when you were a rocket. And then we're like, oh, the book. What is the book about? Why? And we have so many questions. So Fiona, can we chat a bit about that? Because it's something that emerging writers struggle with. They tend to play all their cards. They don't hold anything back. And it's just like, here's the backstory. This is everything you need to know. Whereas when you plant these sort of clues, this is what keeps the reader engaged and invested and turning pages. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is keeping that tension going through the entire book so that there are questions to be answered. When I'm outlining, I'm always asking myself, what are the questions that still need to be answered? What is still out there? In It's like Chekhov's gun. If there's a gun in the first act, you need to keep people wondering when it's going to go off. And I'll check back as I'm writing that first draft of, okay, what are the secrets that still need to be told? Yet at the same time, you don't want to kind of blast the reader with things that seem so opaque or just unclear that you're confusing them. And and that's the the fine line to 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 travel. And you know, for me, it's figuring out who that character is, so that the character comes off as a very three dimensional person. And so the little bits that you're dribbling out to keep the reader reading don't infuriate the reader. 
they need to intrigue them, but not infuriate. Yeah, that's incredibly, yeah, that's helpful too, because you don't want to frustrate them. You want to keep them curious. Something that I do with my own work, and I'd be interested to see if you do it with yours, is that I kind of reverse engineer. So I'm not a plotter like you are, Fiona. I wish I was. It would make my life much easier. But let's say I'm in chapter 30 and I realize something about a certain character and I don't just want it to be this weird revelation in chapter 30. So then I go back and I find places in the chapters, like chapter three, I can hint at it. Chapter eight, I drop another little hint. So that by the time I get to chapter 30, it's a payoff as opposed to this thing that just comes out of nowhere. Is that something you ever do? Or is your outlining so good that you don't need to do that? No, no, I definitely go back as I'm revising and and make things clear. I tend to not make things clear enough. And then I do have to go back, especially if there's a big plot twist or a big reveal as to who committed a crime or something like that. I usually need to go in and make those clues a little warmer for the reader, because to me, it seems so obvious. But when the reader's reading, they, they have a very different point of view. And it's so hard to do that and not overdo it. And yeah, it's things like in, in the book, The Magnolia Palace, I knew these letters needed to be found by someone who the character did not want to find them. And I thought, oh, that's something I can do to sustain that interest is early on, have her leave them out on her dresser. And she knows, she, she thinks I, I really should burn these, but I just can't let them go just yet. And so that just, you know, it's enough for the reader to go, oh, please burn them and then have a payoff later. Yeah, it is. It's important for the reader to understand that that's a clue and that they need to have a reaction to it. It can't be too subtle, otherwise they miss it. And if it's you bang them over their head with it, then they figure things out for themselves. So it is finding that balance. And I do love it when I'm reading and a character does something like that and leaves letters out. And I'm just like, no, take the letters with you. What are you doing? This is stupid. And it does. It creates that tension between the author, the pages, and the reader. One last question, Fiona, something that you've done really well, and we generally caution writers against doing this, is we generally say in opening pages, don't have peripheral characters taking up a lot of space on the page. We say spend all the time with your main character, have them be the person that you're really focusing on. But what you did here is we have two peripheral characters. One is a mover, who gets quite a lot of time on the page. And the other is Piper, who is the events coordinator's assistant. But you use them to such brilliant effect. They're not just there stealing focus. What they do is they are helping to plant curiosity seeds. They are giving organic backstory in a way that makes the reader curious. They are stopping a character from being alone on the page and just dwelling, which is also death for a scene. You don't just want a character by themselves thinking, thinking, thinking. And they also act as like tipping dominoes because things that Piper and the mover do results in our main character changing her mind and going to this event. So mm -hmm. it's, it's not that they still focus, they add to the story. Can you speak a bit about doing that? Yeah, sure. You know, I think my first idea for that scene was that, oh, it's this woman and she she's getting ready to go to this big anniversary party at Radio City. And then the and my immediate thought is, no, that's far too easy. What are the obstacles? There's no obstacles there. And so instead to have her in the middle of a move and she's forgotten about this anniversary thing that she was invited to. And so there's all these memories coming from her past from the move that are being thrown at her. And then on top of it, this young girl shows up and says, come on, we're ready to go. And then has to convince her that she has to go. 
And so then you have something dynamic going on and something she can fight against and something for the reader to to have sympathy for her. She's clearly just a little bit overwhelmed right now by both memories and what's happening in her life. And then, of course, what's going to happen at the anniversary party? Why do they want her to get there? And that's at the very end of the book. So you've got a perfect curiosity seed that can grow for 330 pages. <laughs> exactly. And then the mover even holds out a dress, right? And the dress has these memories attached to it and all the rest of it. And this helps change her mind. So for our listeners, if you're going to have these kind of peripheral characters who are going to be in early chapters, they need to be moving the plot forward. They need to be resulting in causality. Them being there causes something else to happen that wouldn't have happened if they weren't there. So it's tipping all those dominoes forward. And Fiona did that really, really well. So for those of you who are starting with that kind of opening and are not sure how to do it, get the spectacular, have a look. We are linking to it on our bookshop.org affiliate page. If you get it there, you support the podcast and you support an independent bookstore at the same time. Fiona, thank you so much for the time you've taken to chat with us and to critique a query letter as well. Oh, thank you. It's been such fun. It's really just a, a wonderful time listening to you. You do what you do. It's it's just a, a joy. Thank you so much. And we hope to have you back for the next one. You bet. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.